Welcome to Herbal Explorations, a podcast hosted by Wilson Lau of New Herbs. Each week, we speak to leading experts about what's happening in the herbal industry. Welcome to Herbal Explorations. I'd like to welcome my guest today, who is Julian Gervaux, the Sustainability Director at San Siba San Filippo where he oversees the development of the ESG and sustainability reporting implementation service practice. In his most recent role as the Vice President of Sustainability at Jackson Family Wines, he spearheaded initiatives that resulted in over $29 million in cost savings since 2015, and more importantly, led the development of the company's Rooted for Good Roadmap to 2030 initiative which engaged more than 100 stakeholders across the company's value chain to plan and budget for a net zero future. He's also a founding board member of the International Wineries for Climate Action, which is focused on decarbonizing the global wine industry. Welcome. Thank you, Wilson. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. Why sustainability? I'm sure a lot of my listeners are wondering, why sustainability at an accounting firm? Yeah, so it's been an interesting... um, evolution for me in my career. Um, you know, as you mentioned at the top, I come from a background in food and agriculture, um, <clears throat> where I was, you know, deeply embedded uh, as an in-house um, kind of kind of an internal consultant, as it were, at Jackson Family Wines for about 10 years, where I helped, um, I helped the company kind of you know, come to grips with and plan for and, and really develop strategy around how you know you advance um, into the into the new into the new millennium and, and really prepare for a rapidly uh, changing future um, and you know as we'll get into agriculture is kind of um, ground zero on so many so many issues of climate and sustainability um, and over you know over the last you know 10 or 15 years of my career working, um, kind of internally within the wine industry, within agriculture, I've recognized um, the broader need for the economy um, and, and companies across the economy to uh, need to develop strategies and, and, and kind of work towards tactical implementation to, uh, to make the transition to a zero carbon economy uh, and to do it in a just way. That, uh, that that really factors in, mm-hmm. you know, all of the, the tenets of sustainability around people, planet, profit, uh, and purpose. And, um, you know, I think an accounting firm, you know, within the accounting profession, we are uh, the gatekeepers, if you will. You, you know, the accounting is really the language of business. And I think there's an incredible opportunity for me personally to expand my impact um, going, you know, outside of the walls of, of of leading sustainability efforts for one company, to really being able to consult with multiple companies across the economy to um, to develop these strategies um, and and to really kind of account for sustainability in a meaningful and standardized way. So I view the accounting profession broadly as these gatekeepers towards um, helping companies um, understand and evaluate what's critical, what's important from a sustainability and an ESG standpoint, um, and ultimately really kind of leading that around, you know, standard reporting, standard disclosures, ROI calculations to help people understand the value, the business, the business case for sustainability, um, and ultimately inform a better decision-making process. Um, and we at, at SSF 
our firm has been around for over 40 years. Um, we're a very purpose-driven practice. Um, and it, as of 2018, we became a certified B Corp. So um, for me personally, the opportunity to align my professional career with my values um, and be able to increase and maximize my impact uh, across multiple companies across the economy was really appealing. And I think, you know, we as accountants um, or we in the accounting profession have a, have a really critical role to play here. Yeah. Disclaimer, I'm, I'm not an accountant. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> unless you start, I'm going to start taking these tests, uh, we, we're going to, uh, which is a different issue. But, you know, I think the way that you're talking about it is spreading sharing the lessons that you learn at Jackson Winery and setting up the International Wine Consortium of and doing those standards and sort of spreading that across multiple industries and the best practices and lessons that you learn there makes a lot of sense. And I think another thing that you just said to me is that accounting for the impact, right? I think a lot of times that's what gets left out, especially audited results and validated, or I shouldn't say validated, I should say verified results, audited and verified results. This morning, I was just listening to a legal webinar on sustainability, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but Northern Quilted um, Towels, they make a claim that they plant three trees for every one tree that they use. Mm -hmm. And they got sued on that. But based on their packet of paperwork, they were able, substantiation paperwork, they were able to show that and beyond. So I think that's where, you know, whether it's internally having that verified results and having an outside firm provide that is so important. Um, so I don't know if that's how you sort of see it, not only in the PNL area and, you know, pr projected, you know, what is the cost and ROI analysis, but also, you know, how do you prove what you're saying yep. so it doesn't come across as greenwashing? Exactly. And there is increased level of scrutiny on greenwashing in particular, what companies say, how they communicate information, um, because I think we've all seen the proliferation of an increase in demand for, you know, products and services that are sourced responsibly, broadly speaking, right? So from a marketing standpoint, there are a lot of people who have taken an increased interest in wanting to share the various different benefits of their, you know, whatever product or service they're hawking and being able to substantiate that with auditable information is absolutely critical. Um, what's interesting in what's happening broadly as it relates to um, sustainability and, and ESG disclosures. And ESG is kind of just the broad concept of environmental and social governance um, factors. Um, so, you know, ESG is kind of um, a subset of the broader sustainability umbrella, and it's historically really been focused on investor screens to help um, the investment community understand and um, you know, articulate risk for investments around environmental and social and governance uh, criteria. Um, and increasingly, invest, uh, ESG screens can, can really be used to help companies um, embed, you know, impact into their business models. And what's happening is there is a harmonization of global ESG frameworks um, and standardization of, of global ESG accounting principles. 
So there's a new organization called the International um, Sustainability Standards Board, ISSB, mm -hmm. uh, which was formed within the last couple of years. It, 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 it arose out of COP26 in Glasgow, um, and they're a subsidiary of the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, and they have issued basically a global set of internationally recognized sustainability standards that are going to be announced and released and finalized this year. And ultimately, um, you know, they'll go into practice starting in 2024. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, I guess the analogy would be kind of in the same way that um, we have, you know, like the generally accepted accounting principles or gap for financial accounting. Um, you now have a standardized set of, um, of principles for ESG accounting. And the two are increasingly um, synonymous with each other. Yeah, and it's amazing that you just brought up COP26 because I was just thinking about COP27. But it is one of those things that it takes a while to for those initiatives to work its way through the system and become reality. And out of COP27, what is sort of like the big sustainability goal that we should all be aiming for? And, you know, what was your big takeaway as far as sustainability in COP27 and, and where we should as a society aim for? Be aiming yeah. For? So, you know, I mean, COP, the, 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 the goal of the COP, and, and I think as it relates specifically to climate and climate action is... We need to get to net zero, you know, carbon emissions as quickly as possible um, as a as a planet, right? As a mm -hmm. spaceship Earth or, or whatever we want to call it. We're all in this together. Um, and uh, ultimately, you know, I think the scientific consensus is 2050 at the absolute latest. But there really have to be increased efforts. Um, you know, all the companies that I advise were focused on having uh, cutting emissions in half by 2030 mm -hmm. um, at the bare minimum. Um, and then, you know, net zero by 2050 at the latest, taking accountability, not just for your own internal operations, your direct emissions, but also your scope three or your supply chain emissions, really looking at the whole comprehensive picture of your of your operations and your global uh, organizational footprint. And I think what's interesting is the climate conversation in particular has really, really coalesced around what do you need to do to be taking action now? Because 2030 is around the corner, right? We're less than seven years away from 2030. We're less than or 25 years away or whatever it is, um, about 25 years away from 2050. And most businesses operate on a pretty long capital cycle. So investments that you're making now as a business leader uh, in infrastructure, they need to be net zero carbon emissions investments mm -hmm. uh, because those 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 infrastructure investments are going to be in place for years and years to come. And they're just going to continue to lock in global warming if they're not transitioned now. Um, so that's that's really the the. The message that I always like to convey is that, you know, the time for talking is over and the time for action is now. Yeah. And I think that's absolutely true. Like, you know, we should, we should have been doing something yesterday and the, day, the years before, but there's no excuse not to start doing, to actually be doing something today. And I, one of the things that you just said really struck me is that we need to future proof our companies and investments because as we look at something maybe as a pass in the past as an example, if you bought a truck that was not diesel, that wasn't compliant with the California laws for the road, 
Well, two years later, you couldn't use that truck when the deadline hit, right? So, and the ROI on that truck is probably four, five, six years. So, yep. you know, you you have basically made a very bad financial decision on the behalf of your company by buying something that is non-compliant in the future. Yeah. And, and you can see the roadmap and where things are headed. So I think not only do you have to look at investment, capital investment and expenditures as what's good today, but is it going to be good still in three, five, six, seven years from now or wherever the life frame, lifetime of that investment needs to be. Yeah. So that's essential, like you said. Yeah. Uh, let's bring it back to agriculture because a lot of the my, a lot of our listeners are uh, botanical companies and and herbal companies or use a lot of herbs and botanicals in their products with your background in wine what are the biggest challenges that you see for agricultural related companies such as the botanical growers and supplement companies as far as sustainability goes um i mean i think there are many <laughs> uh, like i mentioned a minute ago ag is really I mean, it's at the heart of, of it, it's, a, it's a Gordian knot, to, to say the least. Um, well, we'll have to condense that Gordian well, knot. I'll pick, uh, I'll pick a few. I mean, I think what I would say, first and foremost, it's context-based, right? So it really depends on the type of agriculture that you practice and the region in which you practice. But broadly speaking, I think some of the big issues, obviously, are water, water availability, uh, not just quality, a quantity of water, but quality of water as well uh, that you use for your crops. Um, climate change, you know, and the impact of global weirding on um, on your ability to, um, you know, to, to, you know, as a farmer to, to be able to predict things moving into the future. Um, things have gotten pretty wonky pretty quickly. Um, I think there's significant uh, labor issues uh, in terms of labor availability. Um, and, you know, I think the other thing that you mentioned um, at the top was, um, you know, kind of how companies that are doing things appropriately and responsibly, how they differentiate themselves mm -hmm. um, and how they, they educate consumers on the sustainable practices that they, that they espouse and they embed. Um, because, you know, I think that, that we are entering that age where greenwashing is, is absolutely ripe. So, um, I think there's, there's kind of a, a whole litany of issues that, um, are facing agriculture. The other one obviously is, um, uh, synthetic chemical usage, um, uh, for, for growing crops. Mm -hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, that obviously plays a, a huge role both in climate, but also soil health and, um, and human health. Uh, particularly, um, you know, in the um, in the botanicals industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it's it's also one of those things that, as we look at the botanical industry and you know wine and agriculture, um, both of us um, have great exposure to the wine area. For me, I'm not a grower or sell wine, but as you were in your past life but I live right down the street from Napa and Sonoma and Paso and all those great wine growing areas in California. And you're really seeing the impact season to season of extreme weather events on yeah. the wine industry. And if you, the last five years, the, the, the variety of quality of grapes that have been yielded due to different things has been amazing. Like whether it's smoky wine because of the wildfire, yep. 
yeah. or a super and great crop because there wasn't enough water or too much water and we got a lot of grapes but not so much good sugars <laughs> and it's just amazing yeah. to me how much like you said not only quantity of yield but also the quality of the product yeah. that is being produced has been greatly impacted by these extreme weather conditions it's this amazing yeah. point that you brought up you know it's really interesting too because um there's a little bit of a false sense of, of, of sense of security to a certain degree, because really the last 10 years or so in, in the California wine industry, I'm speaking kind of specifically California, Oregon, um, the last decade of harvests have been pretty exceptional from a quality standpoint. Um, yields have kind of been all over the map, but from a quality standpoint, they've been really, really good. Um, and you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's, you know, it's getting warmer, it's getting drier. Um, but if growers don't adapt to those changing conditions, you know, the vineyards that they're planting today and the vineyards that they planted five, 10 years ago, different canopy management techniques are, are coming into play. Different rootstocks are coming into play. Um, I mean, there's even a discussion now in places like, like Napa, which is, you know, hallowed and known for Cabernet Sauvignon about, you know, the ability for cab, which is really what Napa has staked its reputation on over the last 40 odd years. How well is that going to grow in a warmer climate, right? So um, all of these things, I think you could be lulled into this false sense of security over the last 10 odd years and thinking like, God, quality has been fantastic, but um, you got to be reading, reading between the lines and looking a little bit deeper to recognize that there are some big, big system shifts that are happening. And it's even more essential the terroir or the microclimates that which these the botanicals that we trade in um, will impact you know certain chemical constituents and or the assortment of chemical constituents in our herb and really the efficacy of how that herb is used in the future um, because a lot of times we don't know the what exactly makes that herb good or what profile is the perfect version of that herb and i it sort of i was recently in reams and which is the champagne growing region and i was thinking wow they need this extreme very tight microclimate that they've been gifted with for the last couple hundred years what happens if that temperature just rises five ten degrees yeah right then all of a sudden can you grow champagne can you make champagne in the champagne region anymore? And yeah. what happens to that designation when you can't grow grow champagne in the champagne region anymore? Um, so there's so much food for thought, especially when it comes to agriculture. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the business of herbs and botanicals, visit newherbs.com. To keep listening to great episodes, be sure to subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, or Spotify, and make sure to give us a rating too.